Welcome back to season three of the All at Once podcast. We are people who carry much like all of humanity all at once. We want to give God the glory and remind you that we don't expect you to agree with everything that we say or any any of our own beliefs. So take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. I'm Kelly and with us today is a familiar voice, Sarah, and we also have a new co-host, Dara. Hello, Dara. Hello. So Dara George is our new co-host for season three. She's also my soulmate. We have been best friends since, what grade did we meet, Dara? I feel like sixth, sixth or seventh. Sixth or I think we met in sixth grade, but it was when we were both in theater in seventh grade that we Correct. really were like, oh my gosh, we're the same human. Mm-hmm. Um. When, when Sarah and I were talking about season three and centering black voices, we knew that we couldn't do that without bringing a person of color to the decision-making table and creating space for that in every capacity for us. I immediately wanted Dara to be a co-host. Actually, before I ever started a podcast, all at once podcast, I was like, hey, Dara, we should just have a podcast. I don't know how to do that. But we were on a subway station in New York. And I was like, I feel like it could be really good if we were on a podcast together. And um, now we are. So that's a really, really special thing. Full circle. Yeah. Yeah. So Dara, tell me a little bit about why you're excited to be here, kind of how this has come to be for you. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me. I'm honored. It is so funny thinking about that conversation that we had in New York, however many years ago, and you did it. I'm just so proud of you. I just want to take a second to say that, like, you have a whole podcast. That's awesome. Like, I feel very mm-hmm. fancy right now with my mic and everything. So just wanted <laughs> to say that, first of all. Um Yeah, I mean, you're my person. You're, you know, my best friend. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that as we go. But um, super excited and just really happy to um, to share my story. I think, you know, I I'm someone who didn't really recognize my blackness, I guess, um, until I was I was, you know, an adult. And I think part of that was because I I never I never heard other people's stories or experiences. I just assumed, oh, this is normal, you know, to, to constantly be fitting into white spaces. And and so when I realized that that was not normal, um, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, this is something that needs to be shared. And so that's, I'm excited to be here and just be a part of, of what you're doing. Kelly, I'm super excited um, for this whole season and just couldn't be more proud of you. So thank you for including me. You're so sweet. Um <laughs> Well, I want to know more about how you two met and how you became friends. Can Man, you tell us about that? Where do we even start? <laughs> <laughs> I think the best story of us, I think the moment we became soulmates was we were in theater. It was eighth grade year. We were in Miracle Worker. I was Helen Keller. She was Annie Sullivan. I had no lines. I had a really easy job. I actually had one line. It was wah wah. Uh, yes. Two. <laughs> I feel insensitive for laughing so hard at that. But Aww. It was funny. Um, but we, in the play, we actually fought. Our, our theater teacher, Rachel Schomburg, was her name, is her name. 
um, she had us actually hit each other and wrestle and like spit food in each other's faces. And I guess I was the one spitting food in your face. You didn't spit food in my face. <laughs> um, but we were wrestling and I had this black sweater on and Dara had braces because every eighth grader did. And she got like stuck to my sweater and I just remember we stopped dress rehearsal or whatever we were doing rehearsal and we were just like stuck stuck help help us <laughs> um I think that's when we became soulmates I mean yeah you know we had to slap each other around uh we wrestled a lot I will never forget that because we were so in the scene and that honestly was probably one of the best takes we had of that scene Mm -hmm. and I'm over you and I'm like trying to move and I'm like why can't I move what my head's not moving (laughs) and then I just remember yelling braces 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 and then Michelle everyone's dying and I'm like are you guys gonna help us or not like are you just going to laugh? Or, yeah. Like we cool, actually cool, cool. are in crisis. Yeah. <laughs> I remember too, um, I think one of the first times I slept over at your house in junior high, one of my first earliest memories of me being white and you being black was I didn't pack shampoo and I assumed that you would just have shampoo in your bathroom like all my friends and I remember going to take a shower and he didn't have shampoo. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do without shampoo. <laughs> and that is when I learned that your hair is different than my hair. And yeah. your, the way you care for your hair is different for the way that I, I care. is different from how I care for my hair. And that kind of started this long haul of deconstruction of colonialism and my belief system of what is good and right and and not and because your family was also staunch democrats yeah and my family of origin that i grew up in was not (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) surprise (laughs) um you know and i just remember sitting in churches and hearing that democrats were evil and that um you know, the, the, to be most Christ-like was to be a Republican. And I just, I, I honestly, I, I thought about you a lot every yeah. time that I thought about that because I was like, well, well, Dara loved Jesus and Dara's wonderful and that doesn't match with, with what I'm seeing in Dara. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember that very vividly. You know, we, we grew up in a small-ish town in Texas and very, very right leaning and getting that messaging constantly, you know, of, you know, if you're a Democrat, you're going to hell or you don't love God. Right. And, I, you know, I'm raised in this environment. My dad was slash still is a very <laughs> strong Democrat, also a Christian. And so hearing that, you know, if, if you if you didn't vote for George Bush, you ain't a Christian. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I disagree. But but that was that was really hard for me because I was surrounded by that. And like, I mean, to this day, I don't really necessarily consider myself a Democrat. I definitely am not a Republican. But it's that whole like I'm, the, I'm nodding my head. I realize yeah. people can't see me, but I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> she's like, yes, girl, preach. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's not mutually exclusive, right? It doesn't have to be one or the other. So it's yeah, it's just an interesting experience, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. I really quickly before we move on want to shout out our sponsor our title sponsor is Alan and Beth Stanfield they have been our 
platinum sponsor since our podcast inception. And so I just want to thank them for their support. And also, if you have any realty needs in the area, please reach out to Alan and Beth Stanfield. They're wonderful and actually good humans. So thankful for them. Well, Dara, I am so glad that you were just willing to join us and jump in here because, um, you know, we need your voice and it's just really important. I, I remember when Kelly told me that you might be willing to join, I, I felt like I kind of kept bugging her. It's like, what has she said? Has she said yes yet? Like, is she going to help? Is she going to do this? So I've just been really excited to have you join in with this. Um, we touched on this a little bit, or you touched on this just a minute ago a little bit, uh, but why does this work matter to you? Why is this important to you? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, when Kelly first asked me, I I almost said no, and not because I wasn't passionate about it, but because I was like, am I qualified to talk about this? You know, I like, is it okay for me to share this? Because I, I think a lot of us, um, women in general specifically, um, you know, grow up and are kind of told to like stifle our emotions and, oh, it's not that bad. Focus on the positives, right? Um, and there's an added level of complexity as a black woman. Um, and so, so what's, what's really important to me is, is normalizing sharing experiences and learning from each other. I think a lot of times, you know, I, I don't have to talk about how divided we are as a country and as a, you know, the world, but we forget that we're all humans and we're all just mm-hmm. doing our best trying to navigate through life. And so I think things like this, where we're, we're elevating black voices and we're hearing from people of color and we have allies who are willing to listen and not just jump to well, focus on the positives, like everything's going to be okay. Slavery was so long ago, all of that stuff. So it's really important not only for other black women and, and people of color in general, but for me, it's even more important for people who are not of color to hear this and like from a real human oh that's actually a lived experience I should probably think about how I've interacted in similar scenarios you know so that's why I'm super excited to be a part of it I just watched this documentary uh it's called black white and us Mm -hmm. and um it's a part of this training that I'm going through and at the end of it the guy who kind of put everything together he was uh he's a white parent who adopted two black children and his whole work is about transracial adoption and understanding how to be a white parent to black children in a predominantly white area and he approached a black author to write his book and he said you know tell me tell me what what do I need to do what how do I fix this how can I learn and the black author's response was believe me and that was really powerful. So I just ask our listeners as we interview people of color this season and as Dara really takes on a lot of the weight of this, um, being the only person of color who's a co-host here, um, I just ask that, that you would be willing to believe her. Just as you were willing to believe me when I shared my abuse story and as you believe Sarah and Sarah's abuse story, let us believe the people that we're interviewing and start to really learn from them. So on that note, Dara, you were not adopted into a transracial family. You, had black, you have black parents and a black brother, but your family was surrounded by whiteness. You were in, a, in suburbia in Houston where most of your peers and friend groups were white 
What was that like? And what was it like to gain awareness of your blackness as you grew up? I was thinking about this question and even the fact that it just sounds so funny now, like gaining awareness of my blackness, right? Like imagine I'm like, hey, when did you gain awareness of your whiteness? Like that's so, it's such a weird concept, but it's it's the reality, right? So when I was really young, you know, we went to a black Baptist church and I actually was ostracized by my black peers quite a bit. And that had a lasting impact on me. You know, it was, oh, you talk like a white girl, you do this, you do that. And I'm like, how do you talk like a color? First of all, no, that's a whole different conversation. But, but so being surrounded by whiteness was normal and comfortable for me, you know, even though I experienced what I now know are microaggressions, you know, I felt like I could fit in and I didn't have to, you know, try to be something that I wasn't. Um, but, you know, it was it was little things. I played softball, which is a predominantly white sport. And so, you know, all of my friends were white. And, you know, it definitely, you know, playing in Texas, you experience some racism, some, some not so fun comments from parents. And I remember specifically one time I was doing a base running competition. Um, it was like each one girl from each team did it. And, you know, I won, but, you know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so this girl, she's, what a monster this girl was. She was just so rude. And, uh, and so to discount my athletic ability, it was, oh, well, all y'all are fast. I will never forget that. I will never forget that. And I literally, I, I, I was so stunned. It's like that TikTok sound. That's like the woman was too stunned to speak. (laughs) Like I had no idea what to do. I was just like, did she, what did she, did that just happen? And so I remember telling my coaches who, who are white women and they were ready to fight. They were like, where is she? Let me at her. So it was things like that that kind of accumulated over time. And it wasn't until I went to college and was the not only the only black player on my team, I was the only black player in the conference. And there's like eight teams. Like that's a lot of, of white people, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was I would always make jokes about it. But there was there was a lot of things that happened that weren't okay that that made me feel othered. And so that was when I really started to realize that I was different. And it wasn't until I started working in the tech space within the last five years that I started being okay with my blackness and and celebrating my blackness. I mean, the listeners can't see, but my office, I've got, you know, black women imagery everywhere. I've got a black and dope sign behind me, but I didn't get to that point until I started working in the tech space. And I worked for a company that was very supportive of being your authentic self and had a lot of resources. And I built community and I got black friends for the first time really in my life. I Now I have more than I can count on more than one hand, how many black friends I have. And that's insane, you know? So that was, uh, that's kind of how I, I got to the point now where, you know, I am like, yeah, I love being black, black, being black Mm -hmm. is dope as hell, you know? Mm -hmm. So it took a while to get there though. And I think, you know, just to reiterate how trauma works because experiencing racism is a, is a trauma and, I don't know a black person who has not experienced racism in the U.S. And like me, you know, I, until I had my adult brain looking back at my childhood, I didn't know that what happened to me as a child was abuse. Yeah. I didn't know that I lived through trauma until my adult brain, which develops, I think, at 25. When you're looking back over your life, uh, you can see, oh, that wasn't normal. Oh, that, that was racism. Oh, that is not how parents should treat their children. 
oh, that's not how teachers should speak to one another or to their students in their classroom. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, that's inappropriate behavior from an adult to a child. Oh, that's what happened to me. And I think we forget that a lot of people, especially, you know, I'm an educator. And so a lot of people work in who I work around and, and in education in general, any, any kind of industry where you're servicing young people, we forget that young people often don't know that what they're experiencing is wrong or traumatic or abuse. So they don't even know to talk about it. They don't know to bring it up. And so if, when they come back to us in their twenties and say, this happened to me, we need to listen and believe them because it, it, they're likely telling the truth and they just didn't know like me. And I relate to that. And I, and I hear that in Dara's story as she looks back, as you look back in your life and you're like, oh, that's what that was. And you've been carrying that for a long time. I have a follow-up question related to that. Sure. Um, so, you know, as you're gaining this awareness, as you're noticing things or reflecting back on things that happened, did you ever uh, have moments where you felt like you were invalidated by people around you or by society it, when you started to kind of recognize these things or maybe even speak up about them or like where you were not believed? 100%. I love this question. Uh, yes. So one example specifically, uh, usually I am not very active on Facebook at all, um, other than posting pictures of my kids, right? But when George Floyd was murdered, um, you know, I I think it was just that in addition to all of the trauma from the pandemic and everything, it was just a lot. And I got to the point where I was like, no, I like, I need to say something. I want to share my story. And so I remember very specifically, I, I put together a post where I was talking about, you know, some of my lived experiences with racism, um, as well as what I was feeling, you know? And so I kind of laid out, you know, I'm feeling sad because of this. I'm feeling angry because of this. I'm feeling guilty because I don't have to worry about my white husband not coming home to me if he gets pulled over versus my family and friends who don't have that luxury. And someone who is very close to me, a close family member commented, uh, not, not a person of color, white man, And essentially, it was just dripping in toxic positivity and completely invalidating my experience. It was word for word. It was don't don't think about the people who hate. Think about the people who love and, you know, all of this stuff. And it it just basically like, oh, it's okay. Like, just just don't think about it. Just be happy. You know, it's like, okay, cool. Let me like flip the happy switch and just erase racism, you know. And so so that was really hard. And, you know, it was someone who's close with, you know, on my husband's side of the family. So he had to have that conversation. But it was like, I'm opening up and sharing not something I read, you know, on Google. I literally lived this experience like and this is how I'm feeling. And so for you to just say, just think about those who love. Well, it's hard not to think about those who hate when they're killing people who look like me and who look like my children. You know, so that that was very that was very hard to deal with. You know, we've moved past it since then, but it was really challenging. Mm. I imagine that happens more than just in that one isolated uh, time. I'm sure it happens frequently if you if you say anything about what's happening for you or how you're feeling or your experience. I can yeah. only imagine that's just an additional level of trauma to deal with yeah. as you're processing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the 
the hardest part of it is it should not be people of color who are responsible for shedding light on these things. But when we do it in spite of that, even though it's traumatic and that's the response that you get, it's just such a kick in the gut. I, I, this is sort of funny, sort of not, but in that same time period, one of my posts was laying out like this happened to me and that was racist and that happened to me and very specific to an experience of a black woman growing up in Texas. And I remember so vividly this girl who I, I probably haven't talked to her since we were 10 years old. Like no joke, like went to school with her. I don't even know. I hope she's doing well. I don't even remember her name. <laughs> But like, so she comments and she's basically, you know, saying, oh, I'm so sorry you experienced that. But, and I was like, oh, Jesus, help me. Here we go. She's like, but I've experienced the same things. I'm like, oh, you have, you've had people call you the N word. Have you like, no, you haven't. Uh, So I was like, that just was mind boggling to me. It's like, you can't let somebody else have the mic for two seconds and you have to jump in and say, oh, I've experienced that too. Like. No, you haven't, fam. You haven't. It's so, different. It's, it's different. crazy. It's really different. This year, it being back in the classroom, that's like what's, you know, right in front of my eyes that I can't see is this. Um, we all have heard the word toxic positivity. But what that looks like is we can't improve. Like that to love a system or to celebrate a country or to celebrate a school, you have to, you have to propagate it. Like you have to always be positive for that system or country or organization when that's not what love looks like if we all love our kids if we just told them they were great all the time and never disciplined them or or gave them boundaries oh my god they'd be little well they already are kind of terrorists but they'd be like actual terrorists um (laughs) they would grow up into terrible human beings and so like when that happens when you're gaslit is what that is right so when 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 we share our experiences and we're like hey you know this organization might be a little bit racist or sexist or might be contributing to the trauma cycle in young people's lives or whatever it is, when we bring that up, we want to keep that happy world syndrome that Mary DeMuth talked about in season two. We don't want to acknowledge that a system or an organization or a country can get better. We want things to stay the same. And that's not what love looks like. That is not what what goodness is. Like, Again, I just go back to my kids. If I wasn't loving them and raising them into kind, wonderful human beings, that would that would be problematic. And so I just think we have to get, move away from this idea that if we criticize a system or if we share our experience that is negative, that that isn't good. That is good. That's how we improve. And that's how we make things better for everybody. And that's the goal is to make the world a better place for the next generation. And so... I'm like, let's go. Let's let's burn those bridges because yeah. how else are we going to make the world a better place? Yeah. And it's also just it's such a privileged perspective, right? Just think mm-hmm. about the good. Well, I don't have that privilege. I have mm-hmm. actual children who are black who I need to think about when they're, you know, how they're going to be perceived in the world and what they're going to be taught and you know, especially there's the added complexity of them being biracial and I want to make sure that they stay close to, you know, their culture. But it's just such a privilege to be able to say, oh, just don't think about it. Well, you can do that because it doesn't impact you, but it impacts me. You know, that 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 um, documentary I was talking about talked about that, too. They were like these white families who adopted black kids. They said one of the things they realized they were like they they they've always been passionate about 
ending racism and anti-racist work and and being advocates for social justice. But it wasn't until there was a black human in their lives, in their homes, that they realized they don't ever get a break from it. Yep. And that's when they realize that that's what it is like to be black in America. You don't get a break. And so to be able to take a break is a privilege to be able to put it take take that hat off of re- anti-racist work and of and of thinking about racism it is a privilege and so i'm glad that you brought that up like just to be able to say oh well just think of the positive is an extremely privileged and ignorant perspective yeah i think too as we think about how we respond when people share their experiences love is meeting them in the messiness and in the pain of that mm. And being willing to be uncomfortable and being willing to sort of take on a little bit of that grief with them. The toxic positivity is is gaslighting. It's not helpful in that moment. Yeah. And I, I think it's all rooted in being willing to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Because it, it that response of, you know, just, oh, don't be sad. Don't think about the bad things. That's because you don't want to be uncomfortable. That's right. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to talk about hard things. That's a good thing. That's a productive thing. It's not about your comfort, right? So, mm-hmm. And on that note, Dara, if, if we are presenting things or ever saying things that you think feel is off or think is off, be a disruptor here too. I have no problem with that. <laughs> so I kind of want to talk about some stereotypes that are placed on black women uh, some problems that come with that. I'd love for us to also just cut. So Dara is going to be a co-host for all of these. So we'll learn more about her the whole season. But I really want to narrow in on some of her own specific experiences related to mental health and being a black woman in America in the tech industry. So if you could just talk a little bit about some of those stereotypes and, and the problems that arise from that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the biggest challenge for me, and I'm glad I went through it because it's what kind of set me on my journey of discovering my own mental health um, problems and solutions, is this whole narrative around the strong black woman, right? Like, Mm. it's something that I think has has good intent, but ends up doing more harm than good. And, And the reason I say that is, you know, Black women are often praised for how strong we are, how resilient we are. You know, we deal with problems, you know, very well. And in a workplace, in a professional setting, like at home, as a mother, it's always like, you got this, you're super strong. And so when you hear that constantly reiterated, it starts to no longer be a compliment and it starts to just feel like a lot of pressure. But, um... No, it's really hard. And then I think like as a mother and and I actually had this conversation with my husband. So, you know, my husband is white and um, we have we have two beautiful baby girls and, you know, he he's his love language is words of affirmation. So he's always telling me, oh, you're so you're so strong. You're such a good mom. You're this, you're that and the other. But the you're so strong started to be a little bit triggering because I realized I was taking on way more than I should have been. I was I was just trying to do it all, you know, be this you know, perfect Pinterest working mom. And like, I'm constantly being told how strong I am. So I'm thinking, dang, like I can't take a break because everything is going to fall apart if I do, you know, which is not true. So I, I think that's another reason why this is really important for me, especially within, you know, the mental health space for people of color and, and black mothers, especially nobody talks about this stuff. 
you know, we talk about how hard it is to be a parent, but we don't talk about all of those nuances and how damaging this whole societal construct of the strong black woman is. So I'm very open with with my story in hopes that it'll help, you know, others going through the same thing. I'm really glad you are. As you were kind of starting to realize kind of the mental health struggles that come with those stigmas and societal expectations, were there any um, kind of stigmas about seeking mental health care for you or for you personally? Or do you do you notice stigmas about mental health care among black women in general? I think black people in general, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, there's this whole, you know, black people don't go to therapy. They go to the barbershop thing, which is mm. is funny, but it's not funny because, yeah. you know, this is a this is a normal thing. If you broke your arm. I'm pretty sure you would go get professional help for that, right? Like, right. that's never questioned. But when it comes to matters of the mind, it's, you know, it's either, you know, whatever, you'll be fine. Just, you know, talk it out. Think about the positives. Or even even worse is, oh, you just need to pray more. Like, you know, you just, just you know, go to church. Give it to the Lord. And it's like, the Lord made really smart people who are doctors and therapists and psychiatrists and counselors like that is for a reason and it's not just like you can't just like choose to not be anxious you know i always love when i tell people i have anxiety and they're like oh what are you anxious about and i'm like life friend i don't know like (laughs) my my (laughs) husband he asked that and like we've been on this mental health journey for a long time but every time i'm like when are you gonna learn like there's not like a a thing yeah i just my throat is closing up and I might throw up and I'm not exactly sure why. I just, yeah. I just need a minute. Okay. Yeah. And it's, it's just so, and it's, it's, it, you know, it's comes from a good place, but like you asking me what I'm anxious about is spinning me up not more helpful. to have more anxiety because I don't know how to express it to you. And I don't think I should have to. Um, so, so yeah, but anyway, so growing up in the black community and you know in the in the church community it was like oh you don't have anything to be depressed about you don't you don't have anything to be anxious about just just pray about it and i had to unlearn that and it was really difficult but it changed my life you know i go to therapy bi-weekly i i take antidepressants which i think there's such a stigma against that but like if i had high blood pressure i would take medicine I just got some chemicals that are a little off in my head that's not a bad thing it's just it is what it is you know so Yeah, I am. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that I also wanted to talk about. I was ashamed to talk about it in the last couple seasons um, about the medication that I take, and I don't know why I didn't want to be. Well, I know why I didn't want to be forthright with it because there is a stigma. <laughs> that's yeah, exactly what we're talking about right surrounding people who take antidepressants or any type of medicine for anxiety or depression, but. Um, I wasn't prepared to, t- to share this story, but I'm going to go ahead and share it. Um, so after, you you all know that after my second was born, just like Dara, same thing happened. Like it's something with that pushing that second baby out that you're like, holy crap. Yeah. I got to deal with some stuff. Um, and I was on antidepressants after my second was born for a little under a year. And then I got off of them and I was doing pretty well. Um, and then the summer of COVID when the whole world was super locked down, shut down, it was July and, um, my brother tried to commit suicide and the responsibility of his life was placed on to me by my parents. And it's a long story. I won't share all the details of that, but it was extremely traumatic and, 
after all of that died down, I went back to my OB-GYN. My OB-GYN is my prescriber of my antidepressants. And I said, I am engaging in a lot of unhealthy behaviors. I'm eating more. I'm drinking more. I'm zoning out more. I'm getting angrier at my kids. I am not well. And I know that I'm not well. And I need I need a lifeline. And I was still going to therapy. And I needed something more. And so I asked to be placed back onto the medication that I was on. She goes, you know, Kelly, I shared her my life story, basically about my trauma from my childhood and then what happened with my brother. And she goes, you know, some people have a, one trauma. That was a long time ago that they get lots of support from the people who are around them when that trauma happened. They get apologies. They get um, acceptance, healing, loads of support. That's great. You don't have that. You have a trauma from your childhood um, that continues to be played out regularly in your life. And that is different. And no person can handle that on their own. And that's exactly what antidepressants are for, is to help people who are going through trauma and have faced trauma and are continually facing their trauma. And it, it is helpful. I am so grateful for antidepressants. Same, girl. And I'm so proud of you. Thank you. That feels like a weight off my shoulders. (laughs) I'm hugging you from afar. So Dara, what ideas do you have about how to combat those social pressures and stigmas in the black community about seeking mental health help? I think it starts with normalizing it, talking about it among the black community, sharing, you know, sharing stories. And it's a, it's a hard thing to do. It took me a really long time to get to this point where I'm as open as I am about it. So I, I think for those who are willing, you know, share your story in whatever way feels right to you, whether it's at your next Bible study group or, you know, in a Facebook post, whatever. Um, or if, you know, people are coming to you and asking you, you know, feel, feel okay with sharing that. And I think, I mean, therapy is, I will push that on anyone and everyone. I I realize that that is, that is a privilege to be able to access therapy. So that's not lost on me, but I feel like any opportunity to, to engage in that and to find a therapist is just life changing. But I think on a broader level, we kind of touched on this earlier for people who are not within the black community, just listening to our stories and not necessarily just about mental health, but like, you know, experiencing racism, experiencing racism, um, because that all ties into mental health and, and listening with the intent of, of understanding and not with the intent of answering. Kelly, you do an amazing job at this. And it's one of the million reasons why I love you so much is anytime I'm going through something, it doesn't matter what it is. Anytime I'm going through something, your first response is something along the lines of, that's a really hard thing. How do you, how does that make you feel? What, what are you thinking right now? Because the the normal reaction that I get with other folks is, oh, dang, I'm sorry, that sucks. But like, why don't you do this? Or, you know, why don't you do that? And it's like, let's not jump to solutions. Let's, let's take a step back and let's just listen and, and acknowledge that's a really hard thing. That's a really, 
I was going to say shitty. That's a really crappy situation that you're going through. That must be so hard. And so even those little things, just even if you're faking it at first, fake it till you make it, fam. You know, like it just it goes a long way because people, regardless of ethnicity, whatever, people just want to be heard. They don't want necessarily you to just jump to solutions. So I, I think that's that's a really good start. That makes so much sense. Um, something that, because my master's program is for counseling, something that has really just been hammered into us from the beginning is the power of that relationship and the power, the healing power of just listening. And so it just kind of makes me think about how impactful it would be if we increased on a societal and a cultural level the ability to listen to others and just be there with them and hear their experiences how healing that would be yeah and on that note I you know this season we're centering black voices and I we've talked a little bit about some of your experiences with racism but would you be willing to share the earliest memory of racism in your life of course um man I think I must have been I think I I was very young I was seven or eight years old and I I don't remember specifically saying that was racist but I knew it wasn't right so I'll never forget this we were at Deerbrook Mall shout out to my humble folks um and i was in line at corn dog seven which now like every time i say that i'm like that is so country like only (laughs) only in humble would there be a restaurant called corn dog seven so i'm in line i'm like i'm so excited because you know my dad gave me my own money and like i was being a big girl and i was gonna order my food and so i get to i get to the front of the line it's my turn and someone cuts in front of me white man white woman i can't remember I, i remember they didn't look like me and the the cashier was a, a young white woman girl, probably like late teens. And so I was, you know, upset because someone had cut in front of me. And so my dad saw what happened. And Kelly Kelly knows this about my dad. He's he's calmed down since then, but he's a little passionate. Uh, and he's he's very much a papa bear. So yeah, she's like, yep, uh huh. Uh, plus one. So, so he comes up and, you know, he's, he is calm and he just like is saying, Hey, like, you know, my daughter was next and the girl caught a huge attitude with him. I don't remember what was said. I just remember it was, it was very nasty and very cutting. And so, you know, my, my dad got upset and started to get a little bit animated. And then the mall security came over and I will never forget being that young, you know, I don't know the difference between a police detective and a mall security guy, right? Like in my head, I'm like, my daddy's going to jail. Like something bad is going to happen because here's this, you know, here comes this big, bad black man, you know, yelling at this poor, innocent white girl. And really, I mean, she was being a biatch, like, you know, like, you know, it's fine. But, you know, and it was a very long conversation. I just was so scared. And I remember going home that night and, and I don't even know if my dad remembers this, but I was asking him like, well, why did they only yell at you, daddy? Why didn't they yell at the girl? She wasn't being very nice. And I, I don't remember what his answer was. I And as a parent, I don't know what my answer would have been. You know, that was my, my earliest and most prominent, I think, memory of racism and the first moment of we are, we don't look like everybody else. And 
that wasn't fair that we got treated that way. Like, I don't, I don't understand. So. Thank you for sharing that with us. Of course. I'm so sorry. I, I know that wasn't the only thing, but so as you start to reflect on all these um, experiences as an adult, as you remember all of these things that happened when you were a kid growing up, um, how does it impact you now? My therapist hears a lot from me, so <laughs> that's number one. Um, but you know what's interesting? So my therapist is a white woman, and she – I'm obsessed with her. She um, she actually helped me to kind of – I guess, I don't know if deconstruct is the right word, but just kind of break down my experiences that I didn't realize were trauma and realize how they impacted me in my adult life. So, you know, I was sharing with her that – there was a period of time where I would get anxiety when my in-laws were coming over because I wanted to like make sure the house was super clean and, you know, make sure everything looked perfect and pristine. And I was like, they're, they're chill people. Like, I don't know why I get like that. And she was like, well, probably because of the dynamic of you being a black woman, your in-laws are white. You know that there are more pressure pressures put on black women. And so you you're overcompensating for that. And, you know, and, and another instance was when I was telling her, you know, how I get anxiety when I take my kids to the doctor. And I don't know why. Part of that is because when Amaya was really young, she went to the NICU. So there's a little bit of, of PS, PTSD there. Um, but she was like, well, like, you know, black women have diphus called on them at a rate of, I don't even know, like four, five times, you know, that of their their non-black peers. And so, you know, you feel this need to, to you know, tell the doctor all the right things you're doing and you're feeding them the right things and you're giving them the right vitamins because, you know, you don't want anyone to question you as a mother. And I was like, dang, girl, you smart. You're right. Because <laughs> I didn't realize, I, I didn't realize, and Kelly, I think you touched on this earlier, we don't realize how how much of an impact those kind of isolated incidents are on you as an adult and it, it you carry it with you and so that was just really freeing for me realizing that and letting go of some of that you know once you know what the it is it it frees us so i know i'm feeling anxious when i go through this but i don't know what it's about yeah. i don't know what 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 it what is it that is making me anxious i don't know yeah but i know that what i'm feeling but I don't know what it's toward. Yeah. And once you frame that and develop some language around it, it loses its power over you. Yeah. Absolutely. So thinking about all the roles you have in all the places and the many different hats that you wear, how far is the reach of racism into all of these different areas of life that you live? That's a good question. That's a deep question. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's just present in every, in every aspect of my life. I will say though, from a personal life perspective, I'm very, I'm friends with a lot of people, but I'm, I'm very careful more so now that I have children, um, who I include in my circle. And so, you know, I've got, I mean, got a best friend who's an ally and is leading a podcast, you know, talking about centering black voices, right? So I'm, I'm very, I'm very careful about that. And so it doesn't mean I never experience racism, but in my personal life, it's, it's kind of background noise, to be honest, um, just because I started cutting toxic pe people out of my life, which 10 out of 10 highly recommend if you haven't done so. Um, 
the election helped with that. I was like, block, delete, bye-bye. Um, so that was super helpful. I think, you know, I, I love working in the tech space. I've, I've worked in corporate environments where I felt like I, I think I said this before, I felt like I had to be much more filtered. I think in the tech space, it's better, but it's still not perfect, you know, and I, there is a huge diversity problem within the tech space. And so sometimes how that manifests for me is constantly being the black voice, constantly being like, hey, guys, diversity. Hey, guys, that's racist. Like, You know, I've I've been in meetings with folks who are like three levels above me and have called them out for the fact that they've only hired white dudes on their team, you know, and, and I, I remember I had one meeting where I said, you know, we need to review our hiring practices because our leadership team does not represent the diversity of the folks who report to us. And if I can be really vulnerable, you know, being in leadership meetings and constantly being in rooms where no one else looks like me is exhausting. And that was, I mean, it was kind of like a clutching your pearls kind of moment. Everyone was like, oh my gosh, because it's not top of mind for everybody. So I think for like in a, prefer, a professional space, that's how it has kind of impacted me the most is feeling that pressure of being the black voice, making sure that, that we are considering diversity in everything we do. And it shouldn't be my job, but it ends up being that, you know, and that's just something that I have to kind of navigate. Yeah. And which also that's a call to action for white folks in the room at those places and in the decision making tables is to change that again, yeah. like accept responsibility for and the opportunities you have. You know, I think about the people who have power to hire people and that's great privilege you have to leverage to represent the people you serve mm-hmm. and um, just have hope and, and do the hard work to to make your organization better for sure. Can I just actually add one more thing, one more thought there? I think another piece, even if you don't necessarily have hiring power, is just being an ally, but being an ally vocally, because I've had situations where I've had a conversation like that and I see people nodding their heads or someone will, you know, shoot me a ping on the side and say, oh my gosh, yes, you're so right. But it's like, say that, speak up, you know, say that in the room so that it's not always coming from the person of color. That's a true ally is saying the hard things you know, be the Kelly. That's that's the TLDR of, of this is be the Kelly. That's the synopsis because it's hard. I mean, it's hard for me as a black person to speak up. I can imagine that as a white person who is not in that community, like that's difficult to speak up against your peers and your family and your friends. But that's how you can truly make a change, you know. And it's costly. Yeah. And I, you know, the what led to losing a lifelong friend and mentor their whole family was me speaking out about George Floyd's death was when I finally said enough is enough my black friends are dying at an alarming rate due to police abusing their power enough is enough black lives matter and it was that time that led to the loss of some really deep friendships and whenever you know they 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 had words whenever I talked about my abuse but it it grew louder and worse and more severe when I talked out and spoke out about racism. And that right there showed me how systemic racism works. You know, like I'm not black and just me speaking out and saying that my black lives, my black friends lives matter to me and should matter to all of us. All lives can't matter until black lives matter. That alone makes them so uncomfortable. They can't have a relationship with me. Wow. 
Yeah. Um, but we need more people willing to risk the, that because as again, my friend Cindy says, the more people who are willing to risk those relationships, those people who are hateful and who are doing the harm will have less places to hide. And that's how we eradicate racism Absolutely. is by no, not hiding it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, again, I want to thank you, Kelly and Sarah, for including me. I, I meant it when I said I feel honored to be a part of this. And I'm really excited to be a co-host and hear from other folks over the course of the season. I think it's going to be really impactful across the board, not just for people of color, but for allies as well. So I'm stoked. Thank you so much for joining in um, on the podcast with us and just for being willing to share your experience um, as we learn and explore all of this this season. This is so exciting to me. I can't believe this is real. All of my favorite people are involved and I just like can't believe it that I'm just amazed that this is something that I get to do. Uh, What a gift. Thank you so much to all the people behind the scenes who work to support us. Producer Janice Street, Marketing Director Robin Boren, Social Media Manager Molly Bays, and Editor Audra Bridges. Thank you for all you've done to support and amplify our voices. Thanks for listening.